With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Do you ever want your arrest for the murder of William Miller? Who was the gas station attendant? But you're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. At the conclusion of last week's episode, Jim Clemente was about to call me back so I could discuss with him how the Jeffs fit into our profile. A few minutes later, Jim did call me back, but we had a bad phone connection, and we got cut off after about 10 minutes. So we gave it a couple of days, and Jim and I sat down to have a full discussion about how Jeff Miller and Jeff Durbin fit into our profile. Listen into our conversation to find out Jim's take on the Jeffs. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The the basics of our conversation were revolving a lot around the fact that Bill's body position, which could mean that he was actually outside of the counter, not behind it. We kind of determined that it looks like the unsub at some point was behind the counter. Bill may have been blocking his path of egress to get out. And then we talked about that back storage room could have been, the unsub could have went back there trying to find a way out. And then that's how Bill ended up you know, in his, in his way. And then um, the call from, that where he, you know, shortly before this happened that he called his friend's cousin looking for him and said, you know, something, something's wrong here. Something bad's going to happen. I need Danny to come back. Right. Yeah, so I think he he detected the pre-assault surveillance, and that's why he called his friend, right? So this is not a super sophisticated operation where they were stealthy and he had no idea it was coming. Right. Yeah, and I think that, you know, with the, the size of the store, it's not like anybody could hide in there. So it could have been somebody coming in and out of the store too many times, or it could have even been someone... In the parking Driving lot. Driving in the parking lot, right. Mm-hmm. And I kind of lean towards the latter there because because of the phone call. You know, I don't think he would have had the conversation over the phone in that little store if the person he was worried about was standing right in front of him. Yeah, unless the person kept coming in and going out. Right. But 
you know, that's super tip off behavior. So, you know, that's not, that's not very sophisticated. Right. And then, so what I started to, before we got, got kind of cut off last week when we talked was I want to kind of take the, you know, the, the, the profile, the assessment we did without you knowing anything. And now we've got a couple of suspects that I'm really curious to see how your take would be as far as how they might fit with the profile in the crime scene. Yeah. And the other thing that I think the other thing that we learn by looking at these pictures is especially the one that seems to be taken from the perspective of the first responding officer is that that gas pump island to the right actually block at least a third of the distance between the door and the corner. And so it's really likely that the actual offender was passing behind that gas pump island just when the officer looked in that direction. And that's why he didn't see the offender, but he did see Martinez. So it's literally so lucky that this guy didn't get caught by the cop with the till in his hand, with the gun in his hand. I mean, it's literally a fraction of a second saved him. So, again, I have to say that this is not a real sophisticated offender. This is somebody who just got lucky. Yeah, I mean, there was so much dumb luck. And we talked about when we were assessing the profile, you know, that with Pilo across the street, you know, how he got out and he quickly and he went to the, he turned into the shadows of the back alley and all that. But I, a lot of it is just dumb luck. I mean, I think when I went out there and walked that crime scene, I'm sure the most likely place for the getaway car would have been back there in that alley. So, you know, he wasn't going back there to avoid the cops. He just happened to be, that's just happened to be where he was going to go anyway. And then, you know, the the fuel pump happened to be in the way, blocking the line of sight of Pilo. And then, of course, you kind of have the Keystone cops looking for him in general, you know, when they come in and they're moving bodies around and not paying attention and not not questioning Martinez until long after. You know, I can't imagine if right when he walked in, if right then they'd come out and said, hey, did you see anything? And Martinez would have said, yeah, he, the guy just left. And then they could at least pursued him. Yeah, it's unfortunate. But, the, you know, this, this whole body position thing, it's just really bizarre that they would do that. Uh, I just don't understand it, but it is what it is. Right. So what I'd like to do now if we begin, is, is I've got the people that I, at this point in my investigation, I'm considering to be kind of the prime suspects, and I'd like your take on how you feel they might fit with this crime scene and profile. And it's it's kind of a tangled web, and it kind of, again, comes back to the, the Keystone cops. So remember there was the guy, the guy's name was Jerry Gutierrez, was the customer that was in the store right next to someone and told police the guy's, you know, six foot three with a thin build and a scar on his chin. And the initial investigators believed that to be the description of the killer. Mm-hmm. And that set the tone for the entire investigation for the first three years. And you know, we later determined that Jerry Gutierrez was in the store actually an hour before that. And that was likely not the person that we're looking for. Well, obviously, that is the problem with an investigation putting blinders on. There's so many times in an investigation where there are red herrings that unfortunately limit what we see from that point forward. 
when investigators are looking for a person or to prove a particular theory, then they tend to only see that which supports that theory or that person. And they either consciously or subconsciously rule out things that are sitting right in front of their face. I don't know if you saw the Aaron Hernandez docuseries, but when the investigators in Boston were, I believe it was Boston, were looking at a nightclub shooting and they they got the video footage and the person who walked in right behind the people who got killed was Aaron Hernandez. And cops recognize him right away. Hey, wow, look at that. That's Aaron Hernandez. Wow, that's, he's a superstar. Wow. And nobody would even consider that he had a connection, nor did they go and interview him, even just interview him about what he might have seen that night. And he's such an unsophisticated criminal that he likely would have said something that would have then perked the ears up. In fact, he was hiding the car that they committed the murder from in his cousin's garage for like a year or two after that. So it's just, it's literally a, it's a shame that police officers, investigators allow themselves to be taken in like that when sometimes the answers are really right in front of their face. So they ruled out, I imagine they ruled out people and witnesses based on the fact that this guy said he was there when this questionable character was there. They gave a good description of him, so that's all they were looking for. That's exactly right. So there was two composite drawings, and you had you know Gutierrez who says, I was standing next to this guy on the counter. You know, he's tall, thin, scar on his chin. And then Martinez also gave a composite drawing. You know, he was probably anywhere from 30 to 50 feet away, depending on how far he had walked when he saw the guy coming out, you know, in not the best lighting conditions. And the guy was wearing a ball cap. So as far as the facial description, I don't put a lot of weight into Martinez. But he said the guy was about his height, short, because Martinez is five foot eight. He was about my height, short, thin maybe 125 pounds. You know, actually, he didn't say 125 pounds. He just said thin guy, short guy, ball cap. But so they had two very different conflicting descriptions. But since Gutierrez was right there next to the guy, they assume Martinez just got it wrong because he was further away. So they go with Gutierrez's description, this tall guy with a scar on his chin. And it's exactly what you just described. So the first, from what I've seen, the first really credible tip came in. This happened on Easter Sunday, March 31st. In November of that year, a woman who's in the county jail calls police or or sends a message through a jail guard to police and says, my husband has been committing these armed robberies of gas stations around town with a guy named Jeff Durbin, who was his getaway driver. And he is also, he also told me that he was the guy that shot the kid at the Clark station on Linden and Empire. That's pretty good information. Yeah. It, 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 and now keep in mind, she doesn't, she has an attorney. She doesn't run this through her an attorney. She doesn't say, I have information on this. Come talk to me. You know, like you would expect if someone is trying to negotiate a deal of some right. kind. She gave up the information right up front. Yeah. hundred percent in, wow. in the, in, in, you know, it was in our, we, we kind of missed this. We, we knew about the tip, 
But in our original uh, open records requests production, the actual lead sheet where all the information I just gave you was contained was completely redacted. So we knew they went and talked to her and we knew what she said, but we didn't know how they got to her. Finally, we got an unredacted copy of that. And then we find out, yeah, she just sent that information through a jail guard, gave up everything. Here it is. He, he, he told me that he was doing these armed robberies and that he killed the kid at the Clark station. So there's two Jeffs. It was the guy's name was Jeff Miller was her husband. And then she said they did it with a guy named Jeff Durbin as a getaway driver. Well, I'll tell you this much, Bob, just on its face, the way that that tip came in and the detail of it and the fact that a bunch of these things could be corroborated, obviously, if there had been a bunch of gas station robberies in the neighborhood and she just told you about it, that's a corroboration. That in and of itself, if they did arrest or convict somebody else for these crimes, then that's pretty good evidence in terms of saying new evidence, a fairly reliable source, because, again, it was volunteered up. It wasn't used to try to negotiate a lenient sentence or something like that. And it should be enough to at least try to get a new trial for whoever might have been locked up before. Right. Yeah. And and I don't know how that's been used in any appeals or if it I think it was used at trial, actually, for Jamie. Jamie Snow is the guy that was convicted for it. This came out contemporaneously before the person was tried. I believe it was in the discovery files. To be honest with you, I'm not I'm not 100 percent certain if that was I, I know that it was it's been known to his post conviction attorneys. OK, um, I'm not so sure about what was known at the trial. So what I'm looking at is the what was done by investigators. So they get this note. They go talk to her. Now, again, I'm, I don't know if you caught it, but I said this is this is the man's wife, not his ex-wife. It's his wife. Right. Right. And they go and talk to her. And she says, yes, Jeff, my husband and Jeff Durbin as a getaway driver, they did the armed robberies of a Clark station this summer, the Clark station a mobile station, and an Econolodge motel. And also, he told me that they did the Clark station before where they shot the kid on Linden and Empire. Well, yeah, that's pretty specific information. It can be corroborated, and and that adds to its credibility. So, all right. So, now, from there, a couple things that, I, that, that at least need to be need to know about that. So, at the time she told police this, her husband had been arrested for at least one of those three armed robberies that she named. I don't know if it was all three or two, but so she could have known that he was arrested for that. Although our, it looks like the newspapers wouldn't weren't releasing names of whoever was arrested because I have the newspaper articles. But so she could have known that he was that they were arrested for those. But nothing about the the Clark Station where they killed Bill, where Bill Little was killed. But so the next the next step is the lead investigator. It doesn't even say in the report if he actually made contact with Jeff Miller. It says, Jeff, you know, after after research, Jeff Miller is five foot six, one hundred and twenty five pounds. And then under it says cleared. Oh, oh he says one hundred twenty five, six hundred twenty five pounds and no scar on his chin cleared. And so that it was that those blinders that you were talking about where they never looked any further because he didn't fit Gutierrez's description. But he did fit Martinez's description. Well, that's a shame. And you never know. I mean, the 
the cop could have done something, like done an interview or found out that he had some kind of alibi and then cleared him. But it seems like he would have documented that had he done that. Right. Or he should have documented if he had done that. Yeah. So the, the plot thickens a little bit. So that's the end of Jeff Miller, the investigation into Jeff Miller in 91. A couple of years later, in 93, a, somebody calls Crime Stoppers and says, I just uh, I was approached by Jeff Durbin, who was the guy that uh, Miller's wife said driver. The, the driver. Right. And Durbin wanted me to do something and I wouldn't do it, whatever it was. But then he says he told me that he was involved in the homicide at the Clark Station on, Lim, on Linden and Empire with another guy. And so this person called Crime Stoppers and then nothing. There's nothing in the police file that indicates they did any follow up on that lead whatsoever. So this is the second time now from two different independent sources that somebody came to the police and said Jeff Durbin's Jeff Durbin's name came up in both tips. Well, Bob, I have to say this right up front. You don't need an FBI profiler. I mean, <laughs> right. What the hell? Now you said somebody's been arrested for this and convicted of this? Yes. And what year was that and what year was this crime stopper? So this is a long investigation. The The crime was 91. The Crime Stoppers tip was 93. Jamie Snow was arrested in 99. Wow. And then convicted in 2001. And tell me, does Jamie Snow have a scar on his chin? Is he tall and thin? No. No. I mean, he's 6'1", 6'2", but definitely does not look anything like the composite. No scar on his chin. Wasn't definitely wasn't thin, more of a kind of a muscular medium build doesn't fit the description either, which that was my biggest frustration is at some point, a cold case unit picked up the case, you know, four or five years later after the initial investigation kind of gave up on it. And that's when the rumors started going around that Jamie Snow had done it It's a small town rumors, rumors spread, and then police start pulling these witnesses, mostly jailhouse informants that start that start telling them, oh, yeah, Jamie Snow confessed to me. And most of those people since then have recanted and, and admitted they were either, either given a deal for their testimony or they were threatened by police that if they didn't and prosecutors, that if they didn't testify on, on their behalf, then they'd be given more time or charged with something else. So that was and that was the, wow. ba- the entire basis of Jamie's conviction. There was zero evidence other than hearsay testimony. What's Jamie's criminal history before this? He he was he was a shit, as 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 he put it to me. I mean, he did a lot of burglaries, no violent offenses, several burglaries, but always um, burglarized places when no one was home. You know, no home invasions or anything like that. Right. How old was he at the time of this offense? Uh, Ninety-one. Oh, I'm trying. I'm blending cases in my early twenties, like twenty. I'm trying to think, twenty-three, twenty-five ish around there okay drug habit no not at that time sounds like he he previously had some drug issues but at that time his ex-wife when i interviewed her told me that who that was his wife then at the time uh they had split up a few years later and then of course it was years after that when jamie got arrested and convicted but she said by then and, and actually his other friends and jamie has all told me the same thing that by that point they had a, they had four kids i think at home and he had settled down and was working and trying to stay out of trouble and wasn't into drugs anymore. And they all said that that Easter Sunday, he was just home with the family all night. Wow. All right. Well, uh, that's a tragedy. How long has he been in since 99? Uh, yeah. Wow. Yep. 
coming on 20, just over 20 years he's been in. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, these Jeffs, obviously there's a lot of information about them. So tell me about the Jeff that went inside. Like, how old was he? What's his criminal history? What's his drug use history? So the Jeff that went inside, Jeff Miller, was 35 years old at the time. From what I've been able to discover about him so far, has a pretty extensive criminal history, the armed robberies, of course, some burglaries, definitely had a drug problem. As a matter of fact, one thing I found in a, um, a newspaper article was that he was, he was arrested just like a year or two before this. So like this guy is in his 30s for stealing model glue from a hobby store. And he was caught. Huffing glue? Yeah, he was caught huffing the glue that he had stolen. That's how he got caught. Yeah. Well, you know, huffing glue actually does permanent brain damage. Mm-hmm. It could account for why he is behaving in a way that seems incredibly immature because he's literally damaged his brain. When he was caught doing that before this murder? Yeah, I, th- I think it was a, a year. I don't have his criminal record sitting right now in front of me, but it was it was from 90 or 89. I think it was a year or two before this. Yeah, well, I mean, people have glue because it's one of the cheapest highs, but it is one of the most dangerous highs. It, it, it literally, I mean, I'd put it up there with, you know, smoke and meth, you know, in terms of the damage it does to you, even meth doesn't mess with your brain as much as huff and glue does right and it can be fatal quick i actually know someone not personally but in our little town a few years back there was a respected teacher that didn't show up for work he was a middle school teacher and then they finally someone checked on him found him dead in his home and he had this whole setup where he had like you know plastic wrapped around the little area where he would and he was huffing glue and it killed him oh yeah that's a really bad thing and it's, like I said, it's a very destructive drug in terms of your brain and cognitive activity. So I totally get why he might be very impulsive and incredibly poor at making decisions. Even if he is experienced in committing crimes, he's doing hack jobs every time. And what did you say the other burglaries and robberies were from? The the three armed robberies that he was arrested and convicted for that occurred shortly after Bill's murder were uh, another Clark station, a mobile station, and an Econo Lodge motel. And it's as, as you're describing with the, the drug use and the impulsivity. So he was caught in the, um, for what, I think it was one of the gas stations, I think it was the, the Clark station burglary, because he was hanging out with Jeff Durbin at a friend's house. They leave in. Jeff Durbin, which I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but they were in, in Jeff Durbin's taxi cab was their getaway car. And they described how they left their friend's house. One of those friends happened to go to the Clark station and was to use the phone because they didn't have a phone. So he's parked in his van at the Clark station parking lot using the phone and watches the two Jeffs in the taxi cab drive past the store like three or four times they went up one way, then back the other, then another way, then the other way, then back and forth. Then they went around the corner and parked. And then he watched Jeff Miller walk right in front of his van with his friend in the van, you know, not friend, but acquaintance that he had just seen a few minutes ago was in the van. Doesn't notice, walked right past him with no mask on, gets to the Clark station. In this instance, there was 
the attendant was standing outside smoking a cigarette, pulls his gun, forces the guy to go inside, violently screams at him to give, the, give him the money, takes the money out of the register, and then if that, if he had put a mask on somewhere in that time because the guy in the van then says, then a few minutes later, I see Jeff go running past me with a Halloween mask on and a gun in one hand and a, and a bag in the other hand with the money, I guess, and took off running down the road and hopped in the cab and drove away. actually seen by someone that was with him only moments earlier and he walks by completely unaware that there's an eyewitness there that knows him. I mean, did this guy call the police and is that why he got arrested for it? Well, no, because he didn't he eventually did, but after he ran away, so it's you know that he walks past him with no mask on, right before he goes into the store, puts his Halloween mask on forces the guy, does the burglary or the robbery, comes back out, runs back, and then runs across the street trying to get to his getaway car, ran across traffic, and almost got hit by a car. And then while he's running across the road, gets in the getaway car and leaves. And then the, 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 the car that almost hit him also knew him and called police and said, hey, I almost hit this guy. And it was a, he had a gun, whoever it was, but she said, that was Jeff Miller. I know him. And it was the guy they were, the guy they were looking for. And this is how long after the Clark Station murder? Uh, August, so it would have been um, April, May, June, July. So it was about five months later. In the same town. Mm -hmm. The same named gas station. And they don't make any attempt. I mean, this is literally years before they resolve this crime. So it's not like they've already got a suspect. It's not like they're already putting together their case. They don't try to link these two cases. It boggles my mind, too, because so they get caught in a, in, a, in a series of like four or five days. They hit that Clark station, a mobile station and an Econo Lodge motel. And that when they you know, he runs in with the gun, jumps over the counter, gets real aggressive with the with the attendant, takes the money. And in all the cases, you know, he told them he, he argued with them to open the safe, didn't learn his lesson from one to the next to the next that the employees can't open the safe. And then leave. So he gets and he gets caught for all three of those all in August. So he gets arrested for there for those. And then if they hadn't already thought about making a connection, it's a couple months after that when Miller's wife calls the police and tells them that he killed the kid at the other Clark station. Right. And then how many months after that that they get this Crime Stopper tip? It's about 18 months or two years later. They get the other Crime Stoppers tip. But he was literally, based on what we can see from the reports, he was cleared solely by the fact that he didn't fit Gutierrez's description. And neither did the ultimate defendant who was convicted of the crime. Right. And that's been my biggest frustration is once the cold case unit took over, if they decided we're going to throw out Gutierrez's description, then why the hell don't you circle back to those original leads then? The ones that were written off because they didn't fit. But it's like they were, they were, they were honed in on... I don't know if it was just because he was the easy way out because the rumors in this. What happened was Jamie had got picked up for another. He was mixed up like an obstruction of justice charge because he knew somebody or was involved in uh, a robbery of a gas station. He didn't actually commit it, but he wouldn't tell them where the guy who did commit it was. And so he ended up going to jail, pulling out for that. 
And then when he got out of jail after he served his time, Jamie left and went to Florida, which is where he had lived previously with his family. And when he left, the rumors started that he was leaving because he was fleeing this murder rap. And then small town, that rumor started circling around. And when the cold case investigators got involved, it's like they just, well, that's the rumor. So they went with the rumor instead of the, any evidence. And then they coerced people into testifying against him? If that's what these witnesses have said. I mean, one of them, I personally drove to Illinois and met the guy and interviewed him. And he told me how they, you know, they, they wanted him to testify. And, and the way they convinced him, so he was in jail or in prison and was coming up on his release date. And they told him that if he didn't testify against Jamie, which he said, you know, I don't know anything about this, that they were going to add more time, that they were going to hit him with another charge or somehow they were going to mess up his release if he didn't give them some kind of story. And, and then they, they helped further convince him by telling them, look, it's not like you're going to be a snitch here. Everyone knows he did it and everyone else is already doing this. OK, so tell me. Is there any documentation that any of of these jailhouse informants came forward on their own and said he told me this, or were they all were they all approached? No, I mean a lot of them did come forward, and that's what. So this guy's name was Ed Palumbo that I that I interviewed the guy, one of the witnesses who recanted, and he said it was basically the all these guys from Bloomington that were in the pen. They got to talking, and they're like, "Well, shit." I mean. Ever, basically, the rumor got out that the prosecution's given deals for people that will testify against Jamie. I meant before. Yeah, I meant before that. I mean, like, obviously, once the rumor gets out, it's like, you know, open season, right? Right. But none of them came forward just on their own and started this. No, I mean, like I said, there was some because some some gave statements and didn't end up testifying. Like, for example, one guy who was in prison and it was. I think it was before Jamie had been arrested, but he called and called the police and sent him a note and said he had information on the killing. And then he on tape said, you know, well, I, you know, I don't know much, but I can, I can tell you whatever I can do, whatever you need me to do, as long as you can get me some time cut. And so like that guy didn't get to testify because he'd already just went on a recorded interview and said that, you know, he's, he's, he's looking for a deal and didn't know. So, and there's a lot of guys like that. So, so yeah, there were some people that just came forward. And some of them were legitimate, or at least thought they were legitimate, right? So these rumors are going around town, and then someone would hear a rumor, not an inmate, just somebody from town, and call and say, hey, I heard Jamie Snow did this. I heard he confessed at this party and blah, blah, blah. So there was a lot right, of that. Right, right, right. Right. But what, here's the problem with that. There's no details of it. There's no, there's no, I have inside information that isn't just in this rumor mill. It's just repeating what they've heard in a small town. And that's just, that's not reliable. They shouldn't be relying on stuff like that. And obviously, when they get the word out to prisoners that they could get a break if they tell something on this guy, I mean, that's not reliable either. No, not, well, none of it is. And that's you should see the trial transcript, Jim. It's a, it's a shit show. You should the, the prosecutor's closing arguments are. I'm just I'm baffled by the fact that a jury convicted. She because the problem with all of these different witnesses. All of them have stories about how Jamie confessed, but none of them are the same. And so she's tr- so she's trying to explain to the jury, you know, that this guy says Jamie was at a party down the street and he wanted a free pack of cigarettes and Bill wouldn't give it to him. So he shot him. And the other guy says that it was Jamie and his buddy Stretch who were trying to score money for drugs. And then the other one says, 
that you know he was he was um, he shot Bill because Bill recognized him even though he's never met him. And there's all these different stories. The prosecutor's like, look, I know the defense is going to tell you that these stories don't match, but what you have to look at is if you take little pieces out of each one of these testimonies, you can basically build a narrative where this makes sense. <laughs> it's like she literally says, ignore the she she tells the jury, ignore the things, the elements of these statements that conflict with each other. And if you only pay attention to, you know, like, so you know what they both, <laughs> all the witnesses said that Jamie left in a car. Okay. So we can, we can hang our hats on that. There was a car. Ignore the <laughs> fact that, you know, it's, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. Mm, wow. In the meantime, like you said, the, you know, they, they had their blinders on. In my opinion, it looks like there's a distinct possibility. The answer was right there in front of them the whole time. A very obvious answer. Yeah. Well, certainly. In the few months after when similar crimes are committed and somebody's arrested and convicted of those crimes, and then the wife of one of those guys ties him to this and to the other crime, and then a Crime Stoppers tip comes in that also ties him. I mean, you got four things that happen that should have been pointing them at the right guy, and instead they take the rumor mill and then they probably believed it. And so they felt totally just in supporting it by these goofy-ass, you know, wannabe witnesses who are just trying to get time off their sentences. Exactly. And, you know, and, and there's there's more with the Jeffs. I'm just getting started. Uh, so, oh, really? Oh, well, so things pick up again. I had went through these guys and what we knew about them, which is basically what I just described to you. A few months ago, and I thought these guys look like good suspects, but we don't have anything else on them. Then I get a tip from somebody who tells me, hey, I used to work with Jeff Durbin at that time. And in the spring, now mind you, the three armed robberies he got convicted for happened late summer. He said in 91, in that early spring, around Easter time, he was always bragging to us that he was driving a cab for a guy named Wiley Holt, which I don't know if you remember from last week, but Wiley Holt was the cab driver that was at the station at, or I don't know if we covered it last week, but Wiley Holt was at the gas station and bought gas and oil about 20 minutes before Bill was killed. And we know that because we see the register purchase, and then at 1 a.m. that night, Wiley Holt walks into the police station and says, hey, you know, I heard about the shooting, and I want you to know that I was there, and there was a brown car in the parking lot with a black guy in it, that was just sitting there, seemed suspicious, thought you should know. But I didn't think much about that at that time until I get this tip that the guy says that Jeff Durbin was driving Wiley Holt's cab, and he was bragging to everybody that he worked with and around the area, that, that little group of people, that he was the best getaway driver in town. And it was perfect because he, he, would, he would use, he had a brown car that he would use to kind of surveil with sometimes. Because it was unnoticeable, un- you know, it, it just didn't stand out in a crowd. And then he would use his taxi cab to do the actual crime as the getaway car because he could alter his logs to show that he was on the other side of town when the crimes were committed. Right. So he tells us this. There's a few things there. And then he also says that Wiley Holt and this Jeff Durbin's dad owned a construction business together. And right after Bill's murder, Durbin's father fired him and and cut off contact with him, wanted nothing else to do with him. And then 
I, I start to look a little further when all of a sudden I find out, wait a minute, this the same guy that we have these other tips on that we know was using a taxi cab actually worked for Wiley Holt, who happened to be at the gas station just 20 minutes earlier and then went to the police station and volunteered this information about the black guy in the brown car sitting out front. Wow. There's a, I'm sure your wheels are spinning there to me. You know, that could be completely innocuous, just trying to do a civic duty. But I also considered what if he knows there was a brown car in one of his taxi cabs involved and he's trying to point the, you know, if anybody says they saw a brown car around, well, I tell you, I saw that brown car too and it was a black guy in it. Certainly not, not my driver. Well, if, if he, yeah, if he's trying to get rid of, uh, any kind of connection or knowledge that he had, or if he's just trying to protect his guy. Right. So then things get a little deeper because of this. Oh, and by the way, this guy told me that in May of 91, he went to police and told them all of this. That Jeff Durbin was using a taxi cab as a getaway car in these armed robberies. And he may have a connection to the Bill Little homicide. He doesn't know, but he knows that he was doing these armed robberies in the taxi cab at that time. And he said the cops sat there. Never took a single note and said, okay, thank you, sir, and sent him on his way. You serious? Mm-hmm. Yep, thought the guy was, for whatever reason, they didn't care what this guy had to say. So does Jamie have a competent lawyer that's filing appeals and putting all this together? He or does. It's all information that was out at the time, and they just ignored it. Yeah, well, most of this part, like they, we knew about the two tips about the Jeffs, previous and then everything else the the connection to wiley holt that's all this has all come in the last month or so through our investigation here on the on truth and justice with our myself and my listeners and he is he is represented by the exoneration project who is working i say working with me but i but i through my investigation I'm, i'm building packages and sending them to her uh tara thompson is her name and then she'll be working these into his post conviction appeals okay great Wow, you guys are doing a great job. I mean, this is incredibly compelling information. Well, it, it goes further. <laughs> if you think it's compelling at this point. So once I see there's a connection, according to this guy, of course, I, I, you know, I've got a vet with this man, this tipster is telling me. So I start checking, and sure enough, I fi- that's when I kind of find that, yeah, he was driving, a, Durbin was driving a cab. And then there was a lot of big investigation that was mostly done by my listeners into whether or not Wiley Holt actually owned a taxi cab company. And it t- turns out he did, but that's a little complicated too. He's kind of, he, he almost seems kind of like a Midwest mafioso kind of guy. Mm-hmm. He owned a cab company in the early 80s, 70s and 80s, sold it in 83 and signed a no-compete clause that he couldn't own open another cab company for 10 years. But then two years later, his son tries to open another cab company in Bloomington. And that gets shot down. And then a couple of years after that, in 1990, his other son tries to open another cab company. And the, the city council votes it down because of this non-compete clause that it, obviously it was going to be Wiley, not his son, that was running it. And then all of a sudden, after the next meeting, it was, it was unanimously shot down in meeting number one. And all of a sudden, a few months later, in February of 91, so this is a month before Bill's murder, the city council miraculously changed its mind and granted a license to John Holt, Wiley's son, to open a cab company. And then, of course, he got sued from the, the, the guy that he had the, the contract with because 
he was sure that Wiley was running it, which turns out he was. One of my listeners found his obituary that said Wiley owned the American cab company in Bloomington, which (laughs) it was pretty obvious he owns. But so that's just kind of just a little bit of who Wiley Holt was, the kind of business dealings he was doing. Right. But he was actually at the time of, of this crime, he did actually have a taxi company. Yep, he had opened it. It had opened for business almost one month before Bill was killed. So, you know, as I'm going through vetting this tip that this guy calls into me, we find, okay, check, yes, Wiley Holt did have a cab company. But it also adds another level of why he would be in there telling the cops that he saw a brown car with a black guy in it so that nobody's going to be looking for his taxi, right, that he wasn't supposed to own. I don't know about that wasn't supposed to own because he because in the in the documentation, he says that he's just a taxi cab driver because on paper, you know, his son owns the company and he's just driving. Right. I know. Well, if cops start banging on doors and asking questions and it's, it's determined that he did own it, that's going to violate his non-compete and put him in trouble. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. So it would just be a reason why he might be affirmatively going out there and inserting himself into the investigation so that there's no chance that somebody's going to think that it was one of his cabs. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I hadn't really thought about that. As I'm going through this, I'm corroborating this. Okay, Wiley did have a cab company. Jeff Durbin did, in fact, drive for his cab company. There's some other extemporaneous type things he tells me, like, the pol- he says police did actually want to talk to Jeff Durbin about some crime around that time. And he said, and then Jeff burned down his mobile home with all of his records in it. Well, again, one, oh, of my, really? one of my, well, he tells me this, I can't confirm it. But then one of my listeners like goes to the library through old microfiche and finds an article, a newspaper article that sure enough, in May of 91, Jeff Durbin's mobile home burned down, burned to the ground. So I mean, so everything this guy's telling me is checking out, I guess, is my, is my point. And again, it's not like he said that Jeff Durbin did the crime, but he's telling me that, you know, he was a getaway driver and he was doing this and he was bragging. And there was something happened right around the time Bill died where his dad cut him off. And it sounds like Wiley Holt, even he even stopped driving for Wiley Holt, ended up driving for another company. But all this makes, okay, well, makes me let's go back and relook at Wiley Holt again now, because at the time I'm just like, this guy was just a good citizen. So then I start looking at his interview, and he says he went to the gas station. It was 7.53, and to you know, remind you, the first no-sale that we think was connected to the robbery was at 8.12. Right. So at 7.53, he's there. He makes this purchase, and then the officer asks him, so how long was it before you heard? Because he says, then I heard about that there was a robbery and a shooting from my, my son, John, over the, the taxi cab radio, like the, like the CB-type radio. And he says, well, okay, well, when did you find out? And he says, well, let me see. I had enough time. His exact words were, I had enough time to get down to the bus station and maybe go inside and grab a soda. And then shortly thereafter, I found out. Which, to me, now the bus station is four minutes away, a four-minute drive. Okay. And the, when I'm just looking at his word choices... And, and I'd love to know what you think about this, but when he says, you know, they said, when did you find out? And he said, I had enough time to get to the bus station. And my, to me, that reads as though it was very soon after that that he found out. 
as opposed to saying, well, let me say I went to the bus station and this happened and this happened. It is a weird thing to say I had enough time as opposed to it took me, mm-hmm. right? It took me this much time. I had enough time sounds like he was trying to accomplish something, right? Right. That makes sense. I was, you know, I, I was looking at it from a little different perspective just in if he's being trying to be just a good guy trying to be honest. He's like, well, how long was it? Well, well, I had enough time to get there. But it was, it was, you know, it just, just just really limiting the amount of time. But that makes sense, too, that it is a super weird, weird word choice. But anyway, so what you're trying to say is that it was a short period of time. If he left the Clark station by 755, you know, that's two minutes after he made his purchase. And he takes the four minute drive to the bus station. He's there by eight. He just had enough time to get there and get a soda. And shortly thereafter, he hears about it. Well, I don't know how long shortly thereafter is, but I know that the police weren't even called to go out there for another 15 minutes after that. And it was another five minutes before Bill's body was discovered by police. And, 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 and we don't know yet, and I don't know if we'll be able to figure out precisely how long after that before even the radio or newspaper or anybody would be reporting that this had happened. So then I started wondering, how the hell does Wiley Holt know? Say he knew it, you know, it's, it's 8.22 when Pilo is the first one to lay eyes on Bill's body. Well, that's 22 minutes after Wiley Holt was at, the, was at the bus station, and he's saying that he just had time to get there and get an orange soda, and he found out. But the call went out, the silent alarm went out on 8.16, right? Right. And then took Pilo four or five minutes to get there? Was that it? It, was, it, it went out at 8.16, went to, di- went to the dispatchers at 8.17, went to the officers at 8.18, and Pilo responded. It took Pilo three minutes to get there. So 8.21? Yeah. 8.21 is probably the time he got shot, right? Right, and it's also the time he's getting shot. Right. So so he knows about it pretty damn quickly. Right, and that's my issue with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hear what you're saying. It's just super suspicious to me that it just happens to be Wiley Holt, who owns the cab company, is in his cab at 7.53, and he seems to be one of the first ones to know what happened. And then the, 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 tips, you know, the tips we have coming in involve Jeff Durbin, who was, happened to be driving his cab that night, and somehow he knows that what happened before, any, before he should have. Yeah, I just wonder if there's some, I mean, did Jeff try to establish an alibi immediately, but in doing so, it kind of tipped off his boss. Yeah, and that's, you know, there, there's there's a few different scenarios that I look at with Wiley Holt. I think that, you know, one option surely is that he was, everything's completely innocuous, he's just a good citizen, but that could still be the case, and he could have been told that this happened, but not told it was Jeff Durbin, and didn't realize that he knew too soon. You know what I mean? Like, like he's, he's kind of a part of it without right. knowing about it. Or I think that he could have went in and this was a diversion by him going in and trying to divert the police and get involved in the investigation by pointing them towards the black guy in the brown car. Or, you know, the most sinister is that he could have been part of the casing in the, in the, the the pre-offense surveillance when he was there at 753. So it could be, you know, any, a range from no involvement 
to a lot of involvement, but he's definitely mixed up in this somehow. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, what before I would say he's, he's involved, I would have to ask, how does that benefit him? I mean, is he a drug-addicted guy, or is he somebody who you know, actually is a businessman? And maybe he's involved in a few shady practices, but will he really be involved in something like this? My personal little hypothesis, which is based on just nothing but hunch, what makes the most sense to me would be that he knew that Durbin did it, and he had just, after a in a six-year fight, finally got his cab company up and going again, and a month later, one of his drivers killed somebody, and so he's trying to protect his driver, more so to protect his business than anything else. Right, and I would ask, you know, what's the motivation behind that? Did he, in fact, run through the money that he sold his cab company for? Did that put him into a position of extreme financial hardship? Did he get involved in things? You know, people come into money, mm. they don't always manage it well, and they end up, you know, owing more money than they did before they made all that money. You know, the lottery winners who end up broke and right. filing for bankruptcy shortly, you know, in a short period of time after. Mm-hmm. They won their dollars, right? That kind of thing. I just wonder if it's something like that. Well, you know, in in the research we've done into him, which is quite a bit, I, I haven't come across anything that indicated that he had any issues like that. You know, he was he was a country music musician that you know that had a little band he played in, and I think eventually he got into like this being in part of a city council or something like that. I mean, it, but nothing nothing ever you know, and obviously he had enough money to start a business again. So you know, I, I don't I've never heard anything about drugs or anything like that. Right. So I mean, there isn't. There isn't a lot of motivation for him to get involved in a crime like that. However, there may be a lot of motivation for him to protect his financial interest. Exactly. And that's exactly why I you know, kind of hypothesize that if he has some involvement, that that was, is most likely how he was involved. You know, and you also have. Right. But it, what bothers me, too, is you got a cab company with a few cabs on the road. It's only a month old. Multiple people. He's this Jeff Durbin guy is bragging to that he's using Wiley's cabs as a getaway car. It seems really unlikely that Wiley Holt was unaware that that was happening with his cabs. Or that he didn't find out pretty quickly. You know, Mm -hmm. in other words, he may not have known in advance that this was going to happen, right? That this particular thing was going to happen. But he may very well have known that this was an issue. And he told him not to do it, and here he is doing it again, and now this kid gets killed. I better get out in front of this. Right. You know, and then a a little more research shows that the Durbins and the Holtz are pretty closely tied in together. So Jeff Durbin's first cousin is married, or at the time, was actually married to Wiley Holtz's other son. And another one of Durbin's uncles drove cabs for Wiley. There's like there's a few Durbins that were all driving cabs for Wiley. They're actually, Jeff Durbin and Wiley Holt are actually related by marriage, and Wiley Holt is a business partner with Jeff Durbin's dad. What you're, and what I'm getting at is what you're saying right now makes a little sense, too, that he's, you know, that if he's aware of it, that he's he's telling him to stop, but he's got, this is family, and he, instead of just saying you're fired and kicking him to the curb, he's trying to get him to knock it off. But then when something really bad happens, He's trying to protect his business. I mean, that's what it seems like to me. Uh, you know, I'm just taking the 
simplest approach to it because that just seems like for him to be involved in something this extreme and this impulsive and this risky in advance just doesn't make sense to me. Not given his type of immunity, his sophistication, his business sense, all that kind of stuff. He'd, he'd know that, that that, I mean, just, you know, to try to steal a couple of bucks from a, a gas station and shoot somebody, uh, you know, I, I just it doesn't seem like the kind of person that would do that. I don't think so either. I mean, to, and, and being a businessman, I think that it doesn't take a genius to figure out that the risk benefit there doesn't add up. Right. But if you're somebody who's huffing glue and you have damage beyond repair, your cognitive abilities and that little policeman in your frontal lobe doesn't work anymore. <laughs> right. Then you're going to do stupid things like that. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that risk benefit analysis is very different for a guy like Jeff Durbin than it is for Wiley Holt. You know, he, what, what he's risking is, is going to jail just like anyone and maybe losing his job. But, you know, for him, if a hundred bucks means getting the drugs he needs or whatever, as opposed to Wiley Holt, what he's risking is losing it, not only going to jail and things like that, but also losing his business, complete financial devastation. I mean, that's a massive risk. So that's, that's why, like you said, I don't think that Wiley Holt was involved in this. But I, I, I can't say that I don't think it's really possible that he was trying to help cover it up when he figured it out because of his financial interests. Right. And the fact that it was so quick after the body was discovered tells me that you're right, that he must have had some indication of what was going on. Otherwise, how could he have acted so quickly? Right. And, and of course, the other thing that, that I have to keep stuck and pinned in the back of my head is, is memory manipulation, even though it was only a few hours later. I can't rule out the fact that, you know, he heard something happen and then he met some met the other drivers for dinner at 10 o'clock that night and they told him, yeah, this kid got shot and he kind of blended those together. It seems unlikely, but I don't think we can rule that out either, that maybe he didn't really know all those details at 830. Mm, that's also possible. Yeah, you're right. But then the the last thing that that, that comes in with the with the Jeffs is after I figured all this stuff out, Jamie Snow is calling me from, you know, he calls me once or twice a week from, from prison and we talk and I get him on the phone, you know, with the usual, hi, how you doings? And I said, Hey, you know, this week we started researching, you know, I tell him what we're doing every week. You know, I said, I started reaching, researching uh, that lead about Jeff Miller and Jeff Durbin. And before I could get it out, he's like, you know, I met Jeff Durbin once. I said, really? Where did, where did you meet him? He said, I never met, knew him before. But he said, right after I got convicted and I was in the processing center, or whatever, in the, in, the, in the prison where they're you know, figuring out where he's going next, he said, I'm sitting in my cell and this big, tall guy comes standing in the doorway and said, hey, are you Snow? And he said, yeah, who are you? He says, I'm Je Jeff Durbin. I'm from Bloomington. And then he stared at him and Jamie said, well, can I help you with something? And he said, nah, I just wanted to see who they pinned that Clark station on and walked away. Shit. <laughs> yeah. Well. Uh, pinned. You don't use pinned for somebody who actually committed a crime. I mean, coming from a guy who is definitely a major suspect, that sounds a whole hell of a lot like a confession or admission of guilt. Right. And Jamie said at the time, you know, because then after that, I shared with Jamie the information that we had discovered. And he was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. And he's like, he's at the time, he thought that 
you know, the, the some guy from Bloomington that was in the community knew that he, you know, in Jamie's mind, he knew he had been kind of framed for this and that he didn't do it. And so he's like, in my mind, I thought other people must know that too. And so him saying, I wanted to know who they pinned it on was just him believing that he was innocent. And then I, and then I told him everything else we found out about, about Jeff Durbin and, uh, doesn't quite feel that way anymore. Uh, well, that's all relevant information. And I think that that can be very helpful. I just, I think more than ever that it's important that you get this information out to the public and, and they, you know, write letters to their congressmen. They post things on social media, get people involved in this because unfortunately, sometimes if you don't have this ground swelling that you know, people just say, well, you know, yeah, he may be actually innocent, but he's already had his justice. You know, he's already had his appeals and really nothing new, nothing new that, that can reverse all that. And to me, that's a terrible tragedy. It, it is. And I'm, I'm hoping, you know, we're, we're drawing to the conclusion of this season and our investigation into this case and you know, that's the real reason, you know, for this episode, I guess, for me, it's just our, for us, it's a conversation. But the reason as we're, as we're kind of drawing close to the end is I wanted to have you on is because I feel like this investigation has been successful, that we have we've gotten to the point where we have a strong prime suspect or group of suspects, and it's time to turn that over to the lawyers. And before we, we, we make that final move to pass the baton back to the attorneys with our case file. I wanted to see how you thought and what you thought about these two guys as suspects. Yeah, I'm squarely in your camp about this. I mean, that just seems so glaringly obvious. These guys should have been main suspects all along. I mean, within months, if not the next year or two years, there was plenty to tie them to this crime. I mean, not only the fact of people saying they were tied to the crime, and including the wife, but the fact that their behavior squarely puts them in, in the realm of suspects. And then with these people who called in and basically volunteered this information, it didn't have to be dragged out of them. They weren't trying to get some kind of deal in the process. They literally volunteered the information. It just adds to the reliability versus somebody in jail who hears a rumor and then repeats it and and can't give consistent corroboratable information that is so unreliable because it can't be corroborated and they didn't cross corroborate each other because they literally knew nothing about the actual crime that should have been just tossed out just tossed out As we draw closer to the conclusion of our investigation into the murder of Bill Little, it's now time to take the case back to where it began. With Jamie Snow's attorney from the Exoneration Project, Tara Thompson. That's next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. 
Our Season 7 logo was created by me, with assistance from Zach Weaver and Shane Yoder. All of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Pam Maples, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com, or you can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at TruthJusticePod, and my personal Twitter handle is at BobRuffTruth. And you can even follow Mike at MBussing89. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at TruthJusticePod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been... Truth and Justice.